Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives when the, the disciples came to him and asked, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus responded by describing various signs, one of which he warned, see that no one leads you astray. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus warned us that not one, not a few, but many false prophets would appear and deceive many people in the last days. The Bible doesn't tell us what their names would be. The Bible doesn't tell us what cities they would come from. The Bible doesn't tell us what their Instagram usernames would be. What the Bible does tell us, though, specifically in our passage for today, is very important, so we should pay close attention to it. First, it tells us that false prophets would come. Second, it instructs us on how to prepare for it. And third, it warns us that many will be led astray, so we are to take action. This is a sobering reminder that Christians must not put their spiritual lives on cruise control, but instead, we must be watchful and diligent while we wait for the Lord's return. Because sadly and tragically, Jesus says that on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a truth that saddens me and moves me to contend for the gospel. And I hope that moves all of us to do this. Because on Judgment Day, there will be many who claim to know the Lord, but will find out that He never knew them because they were deceived. The prophecies given to us from God through the apostles should move us to take action. But we must ensure ourselves that we respond correctly. Now, there's many ways of responding to this kind of news. Some people's response is forgetfulness. So the warnings are not something they're concerned about because it's not even on the radar. Others believe that ignoring false teachers and false teachings will make the problem go away. Still others believe that hating false teachers and making fun of them is what Christians should do. But... Is this the way the Bible calls us to respond? Well, this will be our focus for today. And if you have your Bible, please open it with me to Jude. And if you're using one of those black pew Bibles in front of you, you can find it on page 1027. And we will be reading Jude 7, 17, excuse me. Through 23. Jude 17 through 23. But you must remember, beloved, 
the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This morning, we're going to continue with our series in Jude, which we started a few months ago. And if you're taking notes, the main point of this passage is because of the certainty of false teachers, Christians must contend for the gospel. Because of the certainty of false teachers, Christians must contend for the gospel. And from our passage, we are given three ways to contend for the faith. Christians must pay attention to the Lord's warnings. That's in verses 17 through 19. Christians must persevere in God's love. Verses 20 through 21. And Christians must pursue those who have been deceived. Verses 22 through 23. And if you missed any of those, don't worry, I'll repeat them throughout the sermon. But so far in our time in Jude, we have looked at the purpose of this letter. And the purpose of the letter is that Jude calls believers to contend for the faith. We find that in verse 3. And in verse 4, we saw that the reason for this calling is because some false teachers had infiltrated the church. They had crept their way in. They had snuck in by stealth, one version says. And they were distorting the truth of God's word. They were distorting God's grace. We also spent time looking at why Christians are to contend for the faith. And we saw in summary uh, that false teachers are dangerous. This is why we are called to contend for the faith. And today we look at how we are to contend for the faith. That's when that's going to be what we focus on, how we are to contend for the faith. So because of the certainty of false teachers, the first things Christians must do is pay attention to the Lord's warnings. Pay attention to the Lord's warnings. Verse 17 begins a new section that focuses on God's people. It says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude called his readers to remember what the Lord warned them about through his messengers. Notice that it's not just a call to remember, but it's something that is absolutely necessary. You see it there. Jude writes, you must remember. Now, it's interesting that Jude would call his readers to remember because it's not the first time that he does this. As a matter of fact, in verse 5, Jude said, Now I want to remind you. And then he starts this section where he reminds us with countless examples of 
important things that these hearers needed to be reminded of. And then he, in this section, we find uh, examples from the Old Testament of ungodly people who were judged. The reason for this is that remembering is an important theme in Scripture. Remembering is an important theme in Scripture. Ever since the fall of man back in the garden, God's perfect creation, which includes God's uh, man's memory, it has been distorted. And as a result, we are all forgetful people. Last week, I went to work and forgot my wallet at home. I didn't realize it until I entered my favorite teriyaki restaurant and was about to place my order. I ended up having to explain why I wouldn't be finishing the order that I had just started making. And I had to go back home on an empty stomach and wait until dinner time to have my meal because I forgot my wallet. Now, our forgetfulness can cause humor sometimes, but it also poses a great danger to God's people. In the book of Deuteronomy, we're told about the time that Moses gave his farewell speech to God's people before they took possession of the promised land. And you know what the main theme or one of the main themes in that speech is? Well, it's remembering. Moses knew that receiving God's blessings would come with the temptation to forget uh, in Deuteronomy 4.9, for example, Moses tells God's people, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. And Moses continues a few chapters later saying, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes, which I command you today. This is just one of many examples that show us that God's people are prone to forgetting Him and His commandments. What were they supposed to remember? What were Jude's audience supposed to remember? Well, two things. They were supposed to remember that false teachers are already here. False teachers are already here. We see that in verse 18. Now, the Lord's warnings are real. Taking from the Lord's warnings, the apostles warned that in the last days there would be scoffers who would live ungodly lives. The false teachers um, described here um, are described as scoffers or mockers. They are those who would mock God by distorting the truth of His Word. And in regards to these mockers, scoffers, false teachers, Paul says in Acts 20, 29 and 30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You see, brothers and sisters, false teachers and false teachings within the church are real. This isn't something that we're waiting for. No, 
Their arrival was predicted and it has come true. Therefore, Christians must remember this. False teachers are already here. Now, some are thrown off by the phrase in the last time, thinking that it's something that will take place in the future. But this is not the way that we should read this. Christians throughout church history have understood this phrase to mean the time period between Jesus' first and second coming. This is why the author of Hebrews could write in Hebrews 1-2, in the last days, this is why... Um, in the last days, God has spoken to us by His Son. This is the period that we're in right now. At Jesus' first coming, He came as a Savior. In Jesus' second coming, He will return as judge. Meanwhile, we must remember the apostles' warnings that these scoffers are already among us. Most importantly, we must remember a second thing. False teachers are dangerous. False teachers are dangerous. And we see this in verse 19. In verse 19, we see, It is, it is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, here we find three descriptions of uh, these false teachers and why they're dangerous. First, Jude tells us that these people cause divisions among God's people. Now, this is something contrary to what true believers do. Christians are those who are moved towards unity with other believers on the basis of God's word, on the basis of God's truth. In verse 4, if you want to look there with me of, uh, of Jude 4, Jude says that these people had infiltrated the church and were perverting the grace of God into sensuality, possibly teaching that God's grace doesn't require repentance or that God's truth about sexual purity was uh, is outdated and not applicable anymore. And it seems that some had bought into the false teachings and thus created divisions among them due to contradicting beliefs. So we find that these false teachers cause divisions. Second, we also learn that they are worldly. It says there in uh, verse 19 that these are worldly people. The NASB describes them as worldly-minded now, there's an expression that's used to help people make logical conclusions of unknown subjects known as the duck test. And basically, it goes something like this. If it looks like a duck, if it swims like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then it's probably a duck. In other words, Jude says that these mockers cause divisions because of their sinful nature. And the third description makes this clear. Not only do these mockers cause divisions and are worldly minded, but they also don't have the spirit. You see it there in verse 19. These people are devoid of the spirit. 
They don't have the Holy Spirit because they aren't Christians. False teachers and their teachings are dangerous because they dress up in uh, in sheep's clothing pretending to be believers, but in reality they are wolves who desire to make Christians fall away. False teachers may attempt to disguise themselves as Christians, but their actions will reveal their true identity. Their actions will reveal their true identity. It's Jesus' original duck test known as the fruit test. He says that false prophets can be recognized by their fruits. They will be recognized by their fruits. Healthy trees bear good fruit, and unhealthy trees bear bad fruit. Find that in Matthew 7. Christians, this is serious. You must pay attention to the Lord's warnings. Paying attention requires that you remember. And remembering is not just a simple recollection of facts such as Remembering where you parked your car in the mall or remembering what you had for breakfast. We can recall these things very casually and without concern. But what Jude has in mind is that we internalize the truth of God's word in such a way that it transforms how you live. And you live this way until he returns. Jude wants us to remember in such a way that we internalize God's truths so that it impacts how we live until His return. So, how do we do this? How do we remember? And how do we internalize things in such a way so that we live in this way? Well, one way that you can do this is by eating like a cow. Yes, you heard me? You must eat like a cow. I learned a few years ago that cows have four stomachs. And they undergo a special digestive process to break down the food that they eat. So what happens is when the cow first eats, it chews up just enough food to swallow it. And then the unchewed food goes to the first two stomachs where it's stored until a later time. Then when the cow is full from the eating process, it takes some time to rest. Later, it coughs up the unchewed food. Only this time, it chews it completely before swallowing it up again. The food then goes into the third and fourth stomach where it's fully digested. And so, this is what it means to eat like a cow. Psalm 1 describes the blessed man or those that belong to God, as those who delight in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. So, eating like a cow helps us to meditate, because it looks like the cow's digestive process. You take God's truth, you read it in the morning, and you dwell on it. And then you take it with you to work, and during your work break, or as you're typing, you think about it again some more. You meditate on it. And then during your lunch break, then during dinner, and then when you get home, 
you think about it on uh, you think about it some more you chew on it and you extract the nutrients from it until you internalize it in your heart so we can live this way by eating like a cow remembering is important to not do this can be dangerous not only for your own soul but for your loved ones in the church and at home as well. Because of the certainty of false teachers, Christians must pay attention to the Lord's warnings, but Christians must also do a second thing, and that is Christians must persevere in God's love. Christians must persevere in God's love. We see that in verses 20 through 21. It says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. What does this mean? Some take this verse to mean continue loving God. While others read this as continue placing yourselves where you can experience God's love. Which one is it? Well, I believe that it's both. When we come across commands in the Bible, we have to remember that God, when He calls us to do something, He calls us to do something because He's enabled us to keep His commands. As we've already seen, this is impossible to do so for those who aren't Christians. But now, as God's people, we are able to keep loving God as a result of God loving us first. 1 John 4.19 says, We love God because God loved us. Meaning that our love for God is dependent on God's love for us. Jude summarized this for us in verse 1 of Jude's letter, which says that those who are called are called by God to be loved by God the Father. And they are called and loved and kept for Jesus Christ. So, continuing, so continue loving God is possible because of God's love for us. Continuing in God's love is also something that we must do. Jesus said on one occasion, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Continued obedience to God is what keeps us in God's love. On the other hand, to reject God and to disobey God is to not be in His love, which is what the false teachers have already proven to be by their lifestyle. They distort God's grace into sensuality, denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, our love for God is not the reason that God loved us. Instead, our love for God is the result of God loving us. Even though we remain in God's love because He keeps us, we are still responsible to persevere in our obedience to Him. He has enabled us to obey Him 
Therefore, we must exercise ourselves so that we continue obeying God. So how do we persevere in God's love? Well, we persevere by obeying three commands. And we see this in the text, beginning in verse 20. The first thing that we are commanded to do is grow in the faith. Grow in the faith. Verse 20 says, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith. The met- uh, Yes, building yourselves up in the most holy faith. The metaphor that Jude uses to help us understand this is that of uh, building on a foundation. And this metaphor is used by Paul um, as well as um, others in the New Testament to help us understand that the foundation of the church is Jesus Christ. The idea of building yourself up is of growing in the faith. The foundation is our most holy faith, and that is Christ and His gospel. Growing in the faith means growing in your understanding of Christ, growing in your understanding of His gospel and its implications. Faith grows as we grow in our understanding of the faith and its truth and its object, who is Jesus himself. And we're to do this not just as newborn Christians, but throughout our entire Christian walk. That's what persevering means. It means a continued effort to accomplish something despite difficulty or opposition. Now, don't ever fear running out of things to learn in the scriptures because you and I will never exhaust the depths and the riches of God's word. Not even when we get to heaven. We will continue learning more and growing in our understanding more and more of the eternal God as we spend eternity with him. So we are to continue growing in the faith. This is how we build ourselves up. If we want to persevere in God's love, we must grow in the faith. And second, we must pray in the Spirit. We also find that in verse 20. Pray in the Spirit. Now, if you read this passage throughout the week, you might have kind of scratched your head and been like, what does it mean to pray in the Spirit? I remember asking myself this question um, many years ago. Uh, because I remember that as a child, I learned that praying in the Spirit meant praying in tongues or in some ecstatic utterance. And I remember praying to God, asking Him to enable me to pray in this way, but it never happened. And I remember feeling discouraged, thinking that it was probably a gift for super-Christians or for more mature Christians But as I grew in my understanding of the faith, I learned that one of the reasons that I didn't pray in the Spirit was because I wasn't saved. You see, unsaved people can't pray in the Spirit. A second thing that I learned was that praying in the Spirit is something that's ordinary and available to all Christians. I remember studying scripture and under, beginning to understand passages like Ephesians 6.18, which says that Christians are to be praying at all times in the spirit with all kinds of prayers. 
And the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, 9 through 13, where he teaches his disciples by saying, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then James 4, 3, where James says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on yourselves. So I started to understand that praying in the spirit means that um, praying in the spirit means having our prayers empowered by and directed by the Holy Spirit and not our flesh. Practically speaking, it means praying for God's will to be done, seeking his interest, seeking his kingdom first. We pray this way because we acknowledge God to be the sovereign king of the universe and not our personal servant genie that exists to give us anything that we pray for. Praying in the Spirit is something that Christians do because we belong to God and the Spirit of God dwells in us. So Jude says that in order to persevere in God's love, we must, uh, we must pray in the Spirit. We must pray in the Spirit. So persevering in God's love requires this. But there's a third thing that we must do. And we find that in verse 21. Verse 21 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Waiting can be difficult for people in our culture. And I'm sure if you live in California, uh, you know what this is like. The reason is because we live in what's called a microwave culture where we desire to get things right now, right away. For example, if we want food to be heated and we want it fast, we use the microwave. And sometimes we get impatient because even the microwave isn't fast enough. Other times we can't wait to get our Amazon order, so we choose the same day delivery option. And if it doesn't arrive when we want it, we get disinterested and we move on and we can send it right back when it arrives. If we're not careful, we can carry this mindset over to our spiritual life. Jude tells us that persevering in the Lord requires waiting for the mercy of our Lord. God's people are to persevere in waiting because the Lord has not returned yet. He's told us that He's gone to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we may also be. But he hasn't returned. So meanwhile, he calls us to wait for him. And we're not to kind of wait in a like whatever way, like disinterested, like, oh, yeah, I'm sure, you know, I'll notice when he comes. We are to be expectant. And to be longing for it. And we do this because we love Him. As some of you know, two weeks ago, I was out of town with some of the, our church family serving overseas. 
And I missed my wife, Erica, during that time. I arrived on a Friday evening, and two days later, she left me for a week. And guess what? I missed Erica even more. And I knew that Erica was going to come back on, on, Saturday, on Saturday. So I was waiting, expected. I was um, ready, counting down the days, patiently, you know, waiting for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I longed to be with her. Jude says that we are to have a similar attitude as we wait for the Lord's return. Waiting for the Lord is a mark of a true believer. Waiting for the Lord is a mark of a true believer. Do you know that? Waiting for the Lord requires faith to trust Him and to live accordingly. He said that He will return. So Christians, take Him at His word. Wait expectantly and obey His command to persevere until He returns. Those who don't belong to Him won't wait for Him. They won't be longing for Him. And when He returns, Jude says that He will return with His mercy for us once more. Scripture says that God's mercies are new every morning. Even though we have been saved and are fully forgiven, we are still a work in progress. We still sin against the Lord. And if we know ourselves rightly, we know that we don't deserve any of His grace or His mercy. But praise God that when He returns... For those that are called and loved by God, He will not give us what we deserve, but He will come with mercy. And with that mercy, He will usher us into eternal life with Him. Beloved, persevering in God's love is something that we must all do. And as we've seen, praying is one of the ways that we do this. Now, you may be wondering, what do I pray for? Well, I'm glad you asked. We saw that praying in the Spirit means praying for the will of God. So in this context, in our passage, pray for your fellow church members here at First Baptist Church, specifically that they would not be deceived and fall away. Pray for our elders Pray that we would keep guard over our lives and doctrine so that we would be faithful to God and lead you well. Pray for those who have been a part of us. And are, are no longer with us. Because they've fallen away. Pray. Growing in our faith <clears throat> is also a command. And if you're not doing this already, discipline yourself to be in the Word 
so that you would grow in your knowledge of Christ and his gospel. After this, read good books that can help you grow in the faith. Ask uh, the elders or any members of the church, and we'd be happy to recommend and maybe even give you free books for your edification. Meet with others in the church for the purpose of doing spiritual good to one another. Don't just spend time doing temporal, not important things. Not that that's bad. But set yourself to do all kinds of good to one another, like meeting to read books together and meeting for accountability or to memorize scripture and to quiz one another. Pray and grow in the faith because this is what God calls us to do. So we persevere in God's love because he calls us to do this. We obey him because we love him. And by doing this, we keep ourselves in God's love and we keep ourselves from falling away. Because of the certainty of false teachers, first, Christians must pay attention to the Lord's warnings. Second, Christians must persevere in God's love. And third, Christians must pursue those who are deceived. Verse 22 and verse 23 tell us this, that we are supposed to pursue those who are deceived. Verse 22 moves from focusing on what we must do for ourselves and moves to how believers must relate to those who have been deceived by false teachers and their teachings. You'll notice that there's a progression in these two verses. There's those who stumble, those who are falling, and those who have fallen. First, we are to have mercy on those who stumble. Verse 22, it says, And have mercy on those who doubt. These are people in the church who are or have started to be affected by false teaching. This may look like someone who has embraced sound doctrine, but is now all of a sudden doubting and wavering, going back and forth between between truth and error. Maybe they're asking questions continually, the same questions over and over, and um, are possibly listening to false teachers and their new teachings on YouTube. Brothers and sisters, we are to have mercy on them. Don't give in to the temptation to ignore or to be annoyed by their stumble, uh, their struggling, their struggle. Just as you have received mercy and are waiting for mercy, extend it to others by reaching out and share the truth with them. Help them to correct their error. So have mercy on those who stumble. Next, Christians are to rescue those who are falling. We see that in verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. This is a different group of people in the church who are more in danger than the first group. These folks may have already to embrace the lies and may be attempting to live them out. One pastor describes them as 
someone who has started to play with fire. This person may be working on exchanging God's truth for a lie, such as believing that one doesn't have to be married in order to be uh, intimate with one's partner, one's wife, or one's husband. Or maybe believing that it's okay to date one's girlfriend who's an unbeliever because he's going to win her for Christ. To this group, Jude says, draw near and rescue them from the fire of God's coming judgment. Now, to be clear, Christians don't have the ability to save anybody. We, 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 we just don't. That is something that belongs to God alone. But we do have the ability and the motivation to speak the truth in love. So prayerfully, meet with such people and speak God's truth with them with the aim of helping them to understand what God's word commands and warns. Do so winsomely out of love for God and love for them. Rescue those who are playing with fire. And last, Christians are to be cautious with those who have fallen. Be cautious with those who have fallen. Verse 23 ends by saying, To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This last group of people are those who are all in. And it may even include false teachers. These folks have fallen. They may or may not even be aware of it, but we know that they're comfortable in their condition. To these folks, we must not attack them or make fun of them. Instead, we must continue to be merciful. That's what Jude says. It says to show to others, show mercy. But he says, show mercy with fear. Show mercy with fear. We must do this with caution. Verse 23 adds to, that we must do, uh, show mercy with fear, something that the first group of people don't require. And the fear can mean that we show that we have fear of being contaminated by their sin because we understand the seriousness of sin. It could also be fear of being won over by them because such people have already won others over to their false teachings. Or it could mean do so with a fear of God, not wanting to sadden him or offend him. Now, we're not, told, we're not told exactly which one of it it is, but they're all possible answers. And whichever one we believe, we are to be merciful and cautious. We are not to hate such people as some would advocate for online. Instead, we're to hate their sin, not the people. A practical, a practical way of showing mercy to this group might, might mean praying for them to be saved or praying for their teaching to land on deaf ears. So Jude tells us that we are to be cautious with those who have fallen this call to pursue those who have been deceived as a result of having received God's mercy. In conclusion, 
false teachers and their teachings are in the church. It happened in Jude's time, and it's here today. This is what was predicted and has been fulfilled. Now, if you're visiting us this morning and you are not a Christian, we welcome you. We're happy that you're here. We've prayed for you to come. What you've heard this morning is a message about a merciful God who doesn't treat people according to their sins. But this same merciful God is also a just God, a God who warns before bringing judgment. It is a God, He is a God who the Bible describes as not taking delight in the death of the wicked, but desires for all to repent, to be saved. The Bible tells us that everyone has fallen short of the glory of God and we've all rebelled. And we've rebelled by disobeying God willingly, by turning from Him rather than living under Him. We've lived for ourselves. And the, the reward for that, the payment for that is judgment. It's God's wrath. But there's good news. That's what the gospel means. It literally means good news. The good news is that you can avoid receiving God's wrath and instead receive God's mercy and become one who was loved by God. And this is possible because there was one who came into this world not seeking his own interests like these false teachers, but instead he came to do the will of the Father who doesn't desire the death of the wicked. It is this merciful Lord who graciously offers you pardon of sin if you repent of your rebellion and trust in Him. He is merciful. And He does this and He can freely and fully forgive you because He died on the cross. He resurrected from the grave three days later. And He sits at the right hand of God right now. The good news for you this morning, the good news that we have believed and that moves us to be merciful is that this merciful Lord has saved us. He has forgiven us. He has loved us. And He calls you to turn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before You, Lord, acknowledging that if you were to keep a record of wrongs, none of us would stand. But we praise you that in you there is forgiveness, that in you there is mercy. We thank you that while we were your enemies, you sent your son Jesus into this world to seek and to save us and to die for us. We thank you that you have showered us with undeserved blessings, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your son. We pray, Father, we pray that you would help us this morning here at First Baptist Church, that you would help us to pay attention to your warnings. Help us, Lord, to be mindful of the, this truth that false teachings and false teachers are dangerous, Lord, and help us to be moved to respond as you would call us to respond, which is by persevering in your love, Lord. Help us to understand your word, to grow in our understanding of it so that we would grow in our love for you, 
our love for one another and our love for those who have been deceived. Help us to do this, Lord, joyfully, urgently, and help us to do it, Lord, mercifully. We thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.